Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com or wherever you get podcasts. It has been a wild whirlwind week, and we're here as always to try to make some sense of it. Anyhow, I'm Gideon Karyuki. I'm Kirsten Dorman. I'm Alejandro Blessen. And I'm Haley Smilo. And have we got a show for you this week? Let us get right to it, um, starting with my segment. So this week, let us talk once again about the story underlying just about every story right now. Let's talk about COVID again. As of Friday, February 12th, in Arizona, there are 2,400 new cases approximately, and 172 new deaths reported, according to the Arizona Republic. Arizona's average seven-day new case, sorry, Arizona's seven-day new average, new case average, my apologies, was relatively high at seventh in the nation, a drop from about first or second place in January. The per capita rate of new positive tests was slightly above the national average of 31.4 cases per 100,000 people at about 42.9 cases per 100,000. The per capita deaths figure was recorded to be fourth in the nation. In COVID vaccine news, the FDA is now letting Moderna put additional doses in each vial, according to the New York Times. This move will allow 14 doses in each vial as compared to 10 currently, boosting the national vaccine supply by up to 20%. Moderna's vaccine is one of two currently approved vaccines for use. This comes as about 10% of Americans have received at least one dose of the vaccine, and Moderna has delivered about 48% of the supply and the remaining 52% coming from Pfizer. So that's just a little walking COVID news. So what's the panel thinking? Um, yeah, let's just try to get as many excuse me, as many vaccines into as many arms of the people who want it. Um, obviously right now the rates of the vaccinations aren't super high and it is a slow process for now. Um, but I would say from every, although I am not vaccinated, from people I know that are vaccinated, from what I hear, the sites run fairly smoothly or smoothly and everyone is pretty much able to be in and out in a short amount of time. So that's good to hear. Um, I would guess I would say that I hope the state uh, looks at some of the, the design of the website, uh, the Department of Health website, because there's been a lot of um, very valid concerns and complaints from the elderly population of Arizona who obviously are not, some of them are not very well-versed in the internet and how to use it, um, that the state make a more, <clears throat> excuse me again, a more uh, user-friendly site. Um, and not only will that help the elderly, but it's just gonna help everyone to have a more user-friendly site. And one thing I'm also curious to see is how the state plans on reaching um, people who aren't online. Um, I don't have the stats, but obviously not everyone is has internet and is able to book an appointment um, that because right now that's the only way. So I'm very curious as to see how the state reaches out to communities 
who either lack the internet or, or don't have any, as well as communities who, more rural communities, especially in a town like mine, Casa Grande, um, in more rural counties like Pinal County, um, how they, I know Dr. Kara Chris has said that they're planning on doing some walk-up sites, um, obviously, because not everyone has a car to be able to get to a, a vaccine site. So I'm curious to see how they roll out those um, sites to where they will be more friendly to people who, who uh, don't have cars and hopefully more accessible. To echo Alejandro, um, everyone that I also know who has gotten the vaccine, everything's went pretty smoothly for them. Seems that side effects all in all were pretty typical, normal arm soreness maybe feeling not as great as they were the day before, but you know, feeling better for the most part for any COVID vaccine skeptics, you can make the choice you wanna make, but th think about it, make the smart decision, please. Um, the news sounds good, it's good. The more vaccines that can be put out, the better that is for society as a whole, it seems. Um, and then as far as accessibility to the vaccine goes, it's important that yes, the elderly, are getting it while they can and that people, healthcare workers, people who are in that kind of first grouping can get it. Um, and the best way to make that accessible is to make it an easy thing to obtain. And we've all had our fair share of navigating difficult websites. This isn't something that needs to be difficult. Um, we as journalism students can make you a basic website. If we can do that, I know the state government can make a website that people can understand how to use. So government, uh, even though you're not listening, please get on that because that would be helpful to your population. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully the rollout plan goes well with people who are not able to access internet or websites or anything like that. And people who don't have that can get vaccinated as well. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm really like, honestly, I'm gonna be quite honest, right now, my mood concerning COVID's kind of torn. Because by uh, like, I'm not gonna mince words. It, as I have continuously said, we're not in a particularly good place right now. We haven't been for a long time. That where we are right now is a massive decline, don't get me wrong. We're still higher than the nationally than the last peak back in the summer. That is not good. Um, anyhow, well, that is bleak and I'm not going to pretend like, I'm not going to mince my words. I've never been one to on this show. On the other hand, it's so weird. It's kind of like both there is a bleakness and this is off. People are still dying and, and not if they're not, a lot of people are getting severe illness with this. Like it's not good guys. On the other hand, the vaccine rollout has gone much faster than I was expecting, given how rocky it has it was initially when it started rolling out more numbers in January, and how rocky it still is now. There's still a lot of problems with the systems, like as Alejandro was saying, the website was a big problem. And it's not just Arizona, it's other states where I've heard these reports. And but there's a part of me that's just so hopeful, despite all this, uh, like the vaccines here, the numbers are increasing gradually every day, like 
I think we crossed more than 2 million administered in this country last week, which is absolutely wonderful. And we need to get that number even higher. <laughs> so, and also I should note, a report, uh, Kara Christ was saying today, also I didn't put this in my report and I should have, that any Arizonan who wants to get the COVID-19 vaccine should be able to get it by the summer. She told this to the Republic and the rest of the press. So uh, crossing our fingers here, um, I am. I have a late spring birthday. So let's, let's, hey, maybe I'll get vaccinated by my birthday. We'll see. Um, Gideon, quick question for you that I don't know if you know the answer to. Um, so as of next week, it looks like a number of high schools are going to be reopening. Um, around the state. Do we know if teachers are being provided a vaccine at the high school level? Because with schools reopening, that should be a very important part. I'm going to be quite honest. Um, I have not looked extremely into it, like at the, here in Arizona, um, given uh, lots of reasons. But um, what I do know is that Arizona is, teachers are being prioritized for vaccines. I've I saw a report the other day that um, the Florence Unified School District in Central Arizona, actually not far from you, Alejandro, um, had vaccinated all their teachers. So, like, yes, teachers are in the priority group here in Arizona, unlike in a lot of states. And the, that's why you're seeing some a, a, a contributing factor to a lot of the fights you're seeing over reopening in a lot of states. One, um, sorry, before we move on, one idea I had, um, I actually talked about with my parents and one idea I had, some ideas I'd seen online is um, a, just a general like idea, like obviously have no um, like basis for this, but uh, I think it would be, it wouldn't be a bad idea if, you know, the government or the state of Arizona went into communities like, and, you know, uh, in some way, you know, basically came to the people with vaccines and like offered them. I think that would be helpful, especially to the communities who were access to a car is an issue or um, lack of internet access. I think that could be something that could be promising of governments going directly into neighborhoods, into communities, um, you know, giving the vaccines. Yeah. And, you know, Alejandra, I think that a really great solution also for homeless populations because those same challenges are also reflected in the challenges we already know that unhoused people face when it comes to things like voting. So that solution I think would also cover and help the, that group of people a lot as well. Yeah, bring them to the people, bring them to the people. There's lots of spaces like when I think of a large space that's in a lot of communities, schools. Most schools have like multi-purpose rooms that that would potentially be large enough. Uh, so yeah, 100% agreed. The state's got to get them to the people. And there's been some rock, so as we've been saying, there's been difficulties with distribution this early on. And I'm hoping the state irons out, irons out like booking appointments and all that because if we want to get, if everyone's eligible to do it by the summer, there's a good chance the state system could get flooded with people. 
um, anecdotally speaking, and I know people I know are extremely unrepresentative of this state as a whole. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, as I, however, just anecdotally speaking, most people I know want to get this vaccine as soon as humanly possible. Will literally sell their kidneys to get a vaccine. So, yeah. I think a lot of us just want this to be over. <laughs> Agreed. And I mean, I'll drink it at this point. <laughs> you kid, Alejandro, that is a way they do administer some vaccines. Not the, not the runner one, of course, but yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks, y'all. Um, and hoping for the best. And ho hope for the future. Um, at the moment, kind of bummed out. It's a very weird place to be. And that's where I've been for a bit concerning this. So mm. anyhow, I'm going to hand it off to Kirsten to take us off to the next segment. Sure. Thanks, Gideon. I really think it's important, even though maybe we're tired of talking about COVID, still very important to keep ourselves updated on. So we thank you for that. And that's we appreciate that from you. So Every week, I try to bring a new case to you that'll make you ask questions. It also seems like this means bringing you a new Netflix documentary every other episode, but this week is honestly no different because I want to talk to you about the newest Netflix documentary, a release looking into the mysterious death of Elisa Lam titled Tr Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Vanishing at the CISA Hotel is a four-part series directed by Joe Berlinger, who also directed the back-to-back -back pieces about serial killer Ted Bundy, the documentary Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, and the movie Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. An interesting thing to note here, in an ET article, Bundy's longtime girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, whose point of view is focused on in the movie, said that she and her daughter actually had watched and finished the film. She wrote that she found it to be well-directed and well-acted, as well as that she felt Zac Efron, who played Bundy, and Lily Collins, who played herself, quote, got it right. Now that Berlinger's portrayal of Elisa Lam's story is out there, her death is in the spotlight once again. And one thing I have noted about the discussion about Elisa Lam's death is that the discussion of the mysterious circumstances here and the end of her life sometimes push the way that she lived the rest of her life onto the sidelines. And we see this happening in true crime a lot, but more recently I've seen more and more pushback against this in her specific case. And that is something I've really, really appreciated of creators in the true crime space. Getting to know Elisa through her writing on social media is something that I'm personally very glad that I've gotten to do. If you're interested in this case, I really think you should too. Her Tumblr, Novel Novu, is still live online and you can find it, read it, and just kind of sit on it. She's actually a really good and talented writer. Like many of us, Elisa seemed to struggle with feeling like she was enough like she was keeping up with the success of others in her graduating class. She struggled with her mental health a great deal, but she was also so determined not to let it beat her and to live her life to its fullest potential. 
In some ways, reading the intimate thoughts and feelings that she put out there not only gives you a window into what she's like, but it can also give you that feeling that you're close to her in some ways. At the beginning of the mystery that surrounds her final day of life, we find Elisa on a highly anticipated solo trip. She's trying to find herself and see the world and live her life to the fullest. And who among us hasn't wanted to do that, honestly? So our story starts in January, 2013. In the year the world has just left behind, the Avengers took the silver screen by storm. Gangnam Style and Call Me Maybe have been playing on the radio nonstop. And Elisa was staying at the Cecil Hotel, which has so much dark history behind it that I genuinely could fill an entire episode of this show just going over that alone. It's not only located on the not-so-nice side, not so side of LA by any means, it's also considered by many to be cursed. In a somewhat interesting tie to one of the other cases that we've talked about on the review, Richard Ramirez stayed there at one point during the same period of time that he was active as a serial killer. Security footage shows Elisa entering a hotel elevator one night, acting bizarrely. And this footage actually had gone viral directly following her death. You can find it very, very easily online. Um, but I will warn you, knowing the other details of her case may make it a little bit more difficult to watch than your average security footage. Many have said that in this footage, she appears as though she's being followed or pursued somehow, but we never see anyone else in the frame, really. She seems very nervously on, like she seems to be acting very nervously on film and she's fidgeting a lot. She's pressing elevator buttons seemingly at random. And when she walks out of the elevator, it's the last time she's ever seen alive. Two weeks later, her body was found floating in one of the water tanks on the Cecil's roof. Theories about what could have happened here have swirled and continue to swirl furiously online and in other spaces on just about any platform you can imagine. Although her death was officially ruled to be an accidental drowning, so many details of this case that I only can wish I have time to talk to you about have been picked apart, analyzed, and debated back and forth so much that it really makes you wonder whether answers will ever come to light. This is another one of those cases in which every possible narrative seems to fit until you zoom back out to the bigger picture and you see all the pieces of the puzzle you've had to set aside in order to make the ones you've already put together fit. My question for the panel tonight is twofold. Before our conversation, what did you know about Elisa Lamb's case and will you be watching Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel? I honestly didn't really know much about her. Um, while you were talking, I Googled and I think I I vaguely remember that video like circulating. Um, I don't know, I think I've seen it like years ago, like before, like, um, you know, before college and everything. So I think I vaguely remember seeing that video. And um, from what you have you described the series, it doesn't really seem exploitative or anything like that. And there is pretty legitimate concerns about how this hotel has 
you know, basically been home to so many horrific things. And so I think I, I think I will watch it because I'm just, I, I don't, I'm very, very curious. Yeah. And honestly, I am as well. I haven't gotten to view the documentary yet, but I do plan on it. And next week, if you're interested, I can give you guys a little bit of an update. I'm hoping, like you said, that this isn't an exploitative piece. I did watch some of the Ted Bundy tapes, that documentary, and I did feel like it was handled fairly well. So I am going into this with hope and the positive mindset. <laughs> yeah, I'm not very, I'm not familiar with the case, uh, but this does seem to be a classic like from just the overview you've given us here, Kirsten, seems to be a classic mis just complete mystery. And absolutely it is. Oh yeah, and the Netflix documentary on this, I'm hoping like Netflix documentaries, as we have discussed on this show, uh, tend to hit it in the wrong direction more, like on true crime at least, than 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 the uh, uh then they get it right, I mean, I mean to say. Right. They, they tend to get it wrong more than they get it right. Not to say that they never, as you said, the Ted Bundy tapes were handled well, but um, there's, yeah, for every one of those, there's two completely, you know, like, stop it, guys. Um, right. And, and that's the pitfall that a lot of true crime falls under. Because I, I was speaking to somebody who is, a professor at ASU doing a survey about the ethics in TV and film and about how we handle those things when it comes to crime, handle ethics in our media. And one of the biggest things is it's hard to toe the line when, depending on who you're talking to, that line moves, it shifts all the time. And so when it, when it comes to Netflix documentaries, it is very difficult to tell where not only audience perception is going to land, but where the people making the documentary are going to land ethically. Um, like you said, the fact that we have an idea with some of the director's previous work is helpful for gauging that. And that is a big part of why I'm going into this with an optimistic mindset. Yeah, I'm very... Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this will be an, an interesting and well-handled one, and I will definitely be adding it to the long list of things I will watch at some point in this century. Right. I think this is definitely a great case for people who like to dig as well. Um, once you get to know Elisa, I think it will also get you very, very invested. I personally am very invested in this case because I feel like it's one of those things where you connect to a victim so much so that you, you say to yourself, oh God, I feel like we could have been friends if I had known her, if we had been in the right place at the right time, you know? And so it makes you want to see some kind of resolution even more. Looks like Gideon and I are twinning today because I also knew like absolutely zero about the case, but that just goes to show me like it, true crime is not my thing. So happy you're here telling us about it because it's good that we're learning. 
And then second reason worth winning, I'll add it to the list of the 26 shows I apparently have to watch slash want to watch. Um, so I'll let you know how that progress goes. We'll get there one day, maybe. Give me like a couple years and it will be irrelevant, but I'll watch it. Well, at least you'll watch it. <laughs> and I think one of the big things too that everybody says in this case is one day, maybe we'll get there. And it is hard to stay optimistic in such a, as Gideon described it, a true mystery um, about finding answers. But we've seen as, as close as it gets to miracles happen in true crime before, where like the Golden State Killer, that capture, nobody saw coming. And so maybe that's what we need here. Until then, all I can say is Look into the case if you really, really enjoy a true mystery. And so then I'm going to hand off to our next segment. And thank you guys so much once again for being a part of this with me and letting me share this story with you. Thank you, Kirsten. I really do appreciate it because large amounts of uh, uh, true crime stuff, I think, goes unnoticed, especially by me. And I'm kind of lump it all into one, but you've been able to show the different sides of it, so thank you. And with that, um, we're not gonna get any lighter here um, for this segment, um, because today we are going to be talking about Britney Spears and more specifically um, the conversation that is happening right now that has recently been spurred by um, a Hulu documentary. Um, Currently, the New York Times has a show on Hulu called the New York Times Presents, and every episode they tackle and basically they make like a mini documentary on a certain subject. And they recently released an episode titled "Framing Britney Spears," um, where they chronicle and they interview people who are close to her, um, media people um, about Britney Spears's pretty much her meteoric rise to fame, her struggles, and what has eventually led to her conservatorship that she's currently in um, where her father, uh, Jamie Spears, is um, the conservator. Um, and for those who don't know what a conservatorship is, basically it is used, um, get, using getting this from CBS News, um, quote, a conservatorship is legally defined as a court case where a judge appoints an individual or organization called a conservator to care for someone who, quote, cannot care for themselves or who cannot manage their own finances according to the judicial, the judicial branch of California. And so this basically happened after um, in 2007, 2008, Britney Spears um, basically had like a breakdown and her father filed for a temporary conservatorship of her person and her estate. And by estate, I mean, basically estate means money for anybody who doesn't know who's listening. Um, and then it became permanent and after that, basically, it was uh, after the conservatorship became permanent, uh, Brittany all of a sudden started becoming very productive. And now that she wasn't already previously productive, but people have speculated that her father, Jamie, because in the coming years, she did put out a lot of work and people have um, speculated that Jamie, her father, has been using her for money um, because he, under the conservatorship role now, um, with Jimmy being the conservator, he does have control over her estate, uh, over all her money. And as far as I know, I think that he still does have conservatorship over her person. And I only say I think because um, 
in 2019, he stepped down because of his health. But I think from what I'm getting from the documentary in the CBS News article, he only briefly stepped down. And Jody Montgomery, um, who is a professionally licensed conservator, stepped into that role um, very, very shortly from what I understand. So it seems that he is both, he's still conservative of her person, but we do know that he is the conservator of her estate. We do know that for sure. And recent developments in that case, um, just last year, um, Brittany uh, filed um, court basically to get her father to no longer be the conservator of her estate. And she asked that, uh, I'm just getting it right here, Bessemer, so sorry, I'm like, having to go to the page, but she basically asked this financial group, um, like a bank um, called, their name is Bessemer. They asked, she asked that they be, um, they'd be the conservator of her finances. And the judge denied that, um, that Jamie would be out, but the judge did grant that Bessemer could be the co, um, the co-conservator. So that way, Jamie and Bessemer what basically, the, excuse me, it's called the Bessemer Trust. Bessemer Trust and Jamie now um, collaborate on Britney's estate. And then actually the most recent development came yesterday, and this is from NBC News. Um, uh, her father, Jamie, lost a bid to retain control of de delegating her investments. And that is one of the, uh, the things that his attorney was trying to get um, Vivian Thorin, they were trying to get Jamie the power to delegate investment powers, but the judge denied that. So that is a win for Brittany. But more importantly, I kind of want to talk about how basically through the media caused, it seems that the media, you know, she was, people forget that Brittany was a star when she was like 16, like selling millions of records. Like unbelievable like stardom you know we think about now there's very few people on this earth because i mean it is because of streaming but also people all of a sudden people don't buy as much music anymore but there's truly very few people on this earth maybe five people artists worldwide who actually sell music like sell a lot of music like millions of copies and those people are like beyonce taylor swift adele like I can, I can't even think of two more people. Like it's very rare nowadays that people actually sell millions of records. Um, but back in the day, I mean, when Britney was first coming up, she was an, a meteoric success, and she was selling millions and pumped millions, and she was a global phenomenon. And basically, we see in early interviews, and for context, she was sixteen and seventeen, and she was being interviewed, asked about if she had lost her virginity her breast size, like truly disgusting, disgusting things. Like, and she was a minor all because her image at quote unquote image at the time was, you would, I mean, people perceive it to be sexual, but also women can wear whatever they want. And it's not up to anybody to perceive whether or not she's doing it for them. Like that's what she was wearing. That's what she was wearing. Like, don't like, she was 16. Like there's really no need to question why she was wearing that. Like that's between her and her stylist and whoever else was collaborating with her at that point. And so we see through that, even the media having crossing that line, just not even caring about her privacy. And then in her early twenties when she had children and into her mid twenties, we saw the paparazzi and lots of media outlets make fun of her, call her an unfit mother, 
basically, you know, ice in the documentary, it shows she was at a drive-through and there were paparazzi in the drive-through, like taking photos of her getting food. Like that's how little privacy that Britney Spears had. Like they truly were on top of her, like in her, on her car. Like it was, it's just like disgusting. And we saw, um, the media like late night host making jokes about her and we obviously know eventually she had her breakdown but i think it brings up a much especially in journalism a much more consequential conversation um when we talk about how much how much power the media and the journalists truly have in shaping narratives because uh, britney spears constantly she was speaking out of interviews like hey like i'm not a bad person like you know, none of, I'm not this person that you guys are making me out to be. But the media coverage was just so powerful that they were able to turn the perception of Britney Spears into a bad mother, into someone who struggled with her mental health and couldn't take care of herself. Like they created all these narratives that eventually led to her just being mocked and losing respect of a lot of people for no good reason at all. And I think it's, I kind of want to open up to the panel discussion about a, a conversation about um, accountability and how we, I know Gideon, obviously you're not a journalist, but you still are, uh, I know you're very invested in media and um, journalism getting better. And I wanna have a conversation and get what people's thoughts are on how, in my opinion, and I wanna see what other people think, the media needs to be more accountable to themselves and really take a look at the people they're covering because this is a point that I saw I've seen on Twitter by many people too many times. We don't think of ourselves as people a part of the communities we live in. So we kind of don't think that, you know, what we're saying is consequential, but it is. And the power that we hold can change a person's life in the case of Britney Spears. I mean, she was just brought down by the media to her breaking point. And so I kind of want to talk about that accountability um, with everyone else. Yeah, uh, Alejandro, one thing that I want to know your and the rest of the panel's thoughts on specifically in the vein of this uh, conversation about the media and our responsibility with the consequences that our words and the way that we shape narratives through our coverage happens. So a lot of the times now, especially with influencers, which are basically our new celebrities, people have begun doing things, crazy things like paparazzi to Britney Spears level things you could argue almost like coming to their houses visiting them at places that are highly sensitive like two different instances within the past year I've seen at least where influencers are at a funeral for a family member in both cases it was the their fathers and fans showed up and demanded pictures autographs hugs things like that. And it speaks to the same level, I think, or a similar level of this constant invasion of privacy, right? And when these influencers, most recently, Bretman Rock is a big example of this. People came to his father's funeral and harassed him. People have been coming to his home. And he spoke out and said, look, I'm a person and I deserve privacy. This is not okay. And a lot of the backlash that he got and a lot of other influencers get is this response of, well, you chose to be famous. You should have known that this was going to happen. 
you should be okay with this because it's something you should expect out of being famous. And I want to know what your thoughts are on that response specifically. Uh, I'm going to go with, oh, sorry. Um, no, it shouldn't have to be like that. But like disturbing someone as they're mourning their dad. Like, guys, no. No, don't do that. Let people mourn their relatives and loved ones in peace. And as to, to kind of tie this back into the main conversation we're having about Britney Spears specifically, like, no, Alejandra, no, she got, no, to put it uh, in a more earthy term, no, she got done dirty. Like, no, she, the media and wider society really screwed her over to say uh, I don't know if I could say that on radio, but here I am. Um, so You're good. S screw is a word we can say. Just checking. So anyway, like, no, she really got screwed over. I, I don't know how else to say it. Like, Right. And I mean, but do you think that what we're seeing with influencers now, could that be tracking in a similar direction to the way that Britney's been treated? Because everyone's apologizing to her now. But look right. at what's going on on the other hand. I don't think it's going to reach that specific level with Brit oh, Britney. What happened with Britney Spears is an extreme case of just the kind of celebrity culture of the early 2000s. Yeah. It's an ex, like it's, don't get me wrong. There's echoes of it in the influential culture of today, but I'm, it was the, almost perfect storm of horrible stuff of the toxic paparazzi of the early 2000s of mm -hmm. a society that refused to just acknowledge misogyny where like you know she was the butt of late night jokes that were just completely unacceptable like things that if anyone said today we would all be like what's coming out of your mouth dude like right and even more recently uh in discussions about the sexualization of youth and things like the schoolgirl trope. Her hit me one more time video is brought up time and time again. And instead of saying the people behind the video are the ones that are responsible, time and time again, I find at least that there's almost this insinuation that it was her perpetuating this. And it's like, the blame here doesn't fall on Britney, in my opinion. I, I, I agree with you. No, like she was sucked in to what was awful. Like America broke Britney Spears. I think that is a correct statement to say. America right. broke this poor woman. And for years we haven't acknowledged it as the public. I mean, there's been also those conspiracy theories about Project Monarch and people pinning things on this big shadow cult or the Illuminati or whatever they say is behind Project Monarch. But I think the even scarier reality is it's us. 
Yeah. It's the culture that we've created and continue to perpetuate. Even today, as we're all apologizing to Britney Spears and saying, we're so sorry, we were so wrong. So many of us turn around and treat other female celebrities and influencers almost as badly. I'm going to put it simply, so. stop apologizing and, like, do something. <laughs> apologizing is nice. It's helpful, but do something. Like, don't just stand there and apologize. Media, I get it. Sex sells. I understand that. I understand you need to sell a magazine. I understand you need to take a picture and get it up on the internet and meet your quota and blah, 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 blah. But I'll tell you what also sells. A good damn story. <laughs> write a good story. Write something interesting. And I promise you, write a good lead. Write a good headline. It'll sell. Those are the stories people remember. Um, I'm going to feel like a broken record here because if you've listened to us talk about media ever before on this show, which if you've listened to more than one episode, you probably have. One, media do better. Two, we're all humans at the end of the day. Let's start treating each other like humans. Couldn't say it better. Let's treat people like humans. Even like, come on, even like superstars. Like, and I don't think, by the way, like just pointing out, like there's an, an exact comparison to a Britney Spears, just because of how fragmented modern American culture is. You know, we're all kind of siloed in our different spheres. There is no one huge, like, or small group of huge figures. There's a like there's a lot yeah there's a lot more and and they're kind of only famous like in certain circles now and it's it's the internet's weird it's changed a lot of things in that couldn't agree more and i think the fragmented nature of the way that britney was treated now the fragmented nature of those echoes that we're seeing of that treatment to me that makes it almost harder to call out because it's not as concentrated now as it was on that single figure on Britney. Now it's spread out and it's in all kinds of different communities that are going to have to deal with this themselves. Yeah. And that's just the problem tougher, but oh, it does. Not unsolvable. It does. And it's like, oh my good. I just really want to, like, anyone who isn't familiar, like, anyone who's, like, my age, like, around the same age as us probably wouldn't be as familiar, like, wouldn't have seen what have happened at the time, because, you know, we were little children when all this was going on, or babies, or not even born yet, <laughs> but, yeah, like, I was, a lot of older media folks were sharing, like, a lot of older journalists were sharing, like, oh yeah, this is, like, yeah, this, this is the kind of stuff they were writing about, like Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears in the 2000s. And I'm like, you're, you can't see the face I'm making uh, because, you know, this is on radio, but it, it, like. To fill our listeners in, it's some mix between shock and horror, like horror. Oh, yeah, no, it's just some of the most unequivocally nasty stuff I have read about. Like, it is completely unacceptable to talk like it should be completely unacceptable to talk about a woman like that it should be triply so when you're talking about a, a minor and a lot of it was when you know spears and lohan who's another a contemporary of britney spears were minors and it, I'm not even going to say, I can't say that stuff on it. I'm not going to. It's not, 
it's just not worth it. Just go search it up on your own time, but it, it, it's really upsetting. Kirsten, to go back to a point you were making earlier, I don't think celebrities are asking for this. Like, you're the one starting to follow them. You're the one giving them a platform. They weren't asking to be written about or talked about. They're making their music or doing their TikTok dances if you want to go to modern day. They're doing what they're doing. Like, I, you talk to most celebrities, sure, some of them wanted to be famous. Like, I'm not going to sit here and right. tell you, oh, so-and-so didn't want to become famous. But no one's asking for this level. Like, th this isn't what they wanted when they set out to do this. I completely agree. And I think the way that people on the internet are treating these people, the people that are saying those kinds of things, it's complete victim blaming. It's so blatant that it, it makes me nauseous, honestly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, what, what, more, what more can you really say? You know, my brain is now fried. I will um, wrap this up by saying um, I don't want also people to forget like Britney's immense talent. Like she is without a doubt one of the greatest artists of our time. Like like you look at her career, like it's illustrious. Like as a performer, as a singer, um, you know. Like one thing they point out in the documentary, um, you know, I cannot speak to Britney's. I cannot speak to um, really much of. Britney's cult of Britney's hand in cultivating her early image, um, because I just wasn't super clear in the documentary about who came up with those ideas or the collaborations or things. But from what I do know is that um, I think her former choreographer, um, so he spoke in the documentary and it showed footage of like rehearsals from tour and stuff that like much of Britney's like dancing and her performance stuff like she had a vision like she knew what she wanted to do she want knew what she, what she uh, how she wanted to look how she wanted the stage to look what she wanted everyone to be doing the visuals like she was an involved artist like she had taste like she worked with who she wanted to work with and she you know she was I think a, a visionary in that sense uh, I just don't want people to forget um, um, just because now she's in this conservatorship and obviously like She's supposed to post on Instagram and stuff, but doesn't have the same freedoms to talk about her life um, in depth that she truly is like a treasure and we should all um, like make sure that we treat her. We should have retreated her, people should have retreated her respectfully a long time ago, but truly recognize that her talent is like one in a million. So, and with that, I will move on to Haley with sports. Thank you, Alejandra. The conversations you always bring, thought-provoking. I think we tend to spend a long time talking about music and culture with you and um, the media industry as a whole. So thank you for that. It's a good time to reflect and think about that type of stuff, especially as we are trying to head into the media industry. All right, panel. I'm going to need you all to unmute once again and shout out an ASU athlete, any ASU athlete, past, present, go for it. Hey, Hanson. Okay, Gideon, Kirsten. Jaden Daniels. Um, oh no, I feel like now is not the time to tell you that I don't keep up as closely as I maybe should with yeah. ASU sports. No <laughs> I'm worries. so sorry. You're proving my point. Thank you. Appreciate it. So as you can see, we've got a football player. We've got a basketball player. 
if I ask people just not on the spot, even if I ask them on the spot, chances are we're going to get your James Harden, your Barry Bonds, your Pat Tillman. So as you heard, you're probably not going to say Chris Bernard or Amy Hastings, and most of you are probably asking who the heck are those people. Point is, you're probably not going to name them or any of the other 26 ASU athletes who competed in the 2016 Olympics in Rio. If I asked you how many ASU sports teams are ranked, what would you say? Go ahead, someone on the panel, shout out a guess. How many sports teams are ranked? One. Three. I'm going to say four. Okay, they're all wrong again. It's seven. Seven out of 17 of them are ranked. Final question for you guys. What team at ASU do you think is ranked the highest? I told you guys this earlier. Let's see if you're paying attention. Water polo. No, close though. That's the second highest ranked team. Um, I don't think it's, I don't know if esports counts, but I know we have a really amazing League of Legends team. We do have an amazing League of Legends team. I didn't even think about that. That would have been a good thing to research. Alejandro, want to throw in a guess? Um, I don't remember. Is it t- no so- tennis? Tennis? Softball? I don't know. It's golf. It's men's golf. Men's golf is ranked number three in the country. And following that, it's mostly Olympic sports. Baseball, football, tennis, basketball, those teams, yeah, none of those major sports, none of them made it into the polls. So the question becomes, why does no one care about Arizona State's men's golf team or a really good college gymnastics team or other Olympic sport team? The answer put simply is money. In college sports, there's something called a revenue sport and an Olympic sport. A revenue sport is a sport that makes money. Take your football team or basketball team, for example. At ASU in 2018, the football team brought in $39 million, which is 38.3% of the school's total revenue for 2018. How much money did the golf team bring in? Well, the number wasn't easily findable, but so I didn't continue looking because I would have been looking for a while and I don't think ASU released that number. But I'm going to take a guess here. I don't think it's a crazy one. I'm going to guess that they didn't make $39 million. And that's the definition of an Olympic sport, a sport that barely brings in any money to the school or a sport that brings in no money to the school. Now, due to COVID-19, D1 schools are receiving less than 63% funding than they ever have. And as a direct result, 352 sports teams as of March have been cut from colleges around the country. Of those 352 teams, 63 of them happen to be tennis teams. In the future, Olympic sports are going to continue to be cut if there's no support for Olympic sports. Simply put, they don't bring in enough revenue, which means they don't bring in enough money, they don't bring in enough fans, and the games aren't really broadcast on TV. If you have any care in the world about sports teams that are actually pretty decent, then when COVID is over or you can go to those games, I would highly encourage you to do so because these teams need your support and they are good teams. If you want to read about athletes that have had their programs cut, I highly recommend an article called The Heartbreaking Reality and Staggering Number of NCAA Teams Cut During the Pandemic by, I'm going to butcher this name completely, but here we go, Ashawari Kumar on ESPN.com. Panel, any quick thoughts about Olympic sports versus revenue sports. It's a real bummer. It, you know, it's a real bummer that it is like 
we've talked no Haley we've talked a lot because of your uh, other journalism work like last year about water polo and just how great they're doing and I know you've had the privilege to cover a lot of the a lot of Olympic sports and and this what you tell me of them it's like wow it's like why do these people get no attention they're awesome and the a lot and a lot of these are the people that are going to be playing for our national team potentially so yeah college athletics makes up 75 percent of america's um olympic and national teams to completely get rid of that would be like national sports on the american level would not exist without collegiate sports yeah so it's it's just a huge huge bummer and it's like but yeah i mean the I mean, it's a statement of fact to just say, you know, the way things work in America, you know, the the dollar bill rules. It's it, that that is the way things are right now in the United States of America. That you know, money talks yeah, and, and money rules. It almost makes me wonder how the people on these Olympic teams versus the revenue teams, how they must feel, knowing that, or maybe knowing that there's this perception that they are less valuable in some ways to the university, maybe, you know, I know I certainly would be feeling like I meant less, you know, to the university if I was on one of these teams and I knew about all of this. I mean, for sure. Yeah. How is a team that's going to make no money compete with a team that made $39 million? Like that's just not possible. And unfortunately the football team does bring in that much money every year. So it's a team that's going to be emphasized. But that doesn't mean that these smaller sports aren't still relevant. It doesn't mean like people can't do something to make them equal to an extent. Like, yes, football's always going to be the prime sport. I understand that. This is not me going on an anti-football campaign. I could do that, but I'm not going to. This is just me saying that other sports deserve attention as well. That's it. On that note, we're going to do something we, oh, Alejandro wants to talk. Go ahead, Alejandro. All right. I was going to say, um, we all know like ASU brings in good recruits every year in every sport, but I don't think we think about the recruits for those Olympic sports. We always think about basketball and football because, you know, ESPN has those directories where you can look up top hundred recruits in the nation who they're committed to or not, but we forget that, you know, a lot of these recruits also come from the Olympic sports like tennis, water polo, and other places and um also the asu also brings in a lot of good international talent i think on like uh, women's golf i think like they're all like i think they're all from yeah. a foreign country um, yeah so i think that's another thing to know and also yes like i'm guilty of this support the support the good teams because a lot of the big revenue um, teams have not been very good and just a tip um for any students who might be listening to this and being like, well, where can I watch? Unfortunately, while these games, sometimes they do get Pac-12 network placement, sometimes they don't, but where you can usually find these Olympic sports and these lesser known sports is their ASU live streams on Pac-12 plus. And those are free, like there's no, like you don't have to pay for anything. And yeah, shout out stream team. I don't think, yeah, I'm sure I'll know somebody on stream team like in the next like couple of years because we all go to Cronkite. But um, yeah, go on. I assure you, you know someone on the stream team. I yeah. promise you that. So yeah, you can download like the Pac-12 app or you can just go on the Pac-12 website and 
um, you can find those streams there. Or follow their Twitters, um, the sports teams. They will promote their stuff like no other. Um, also, congrats to the softball team. They won their opening two games, so yay softball. Um, yeah, go follow your local sports on COVID. Continue to wear your mask, please. If you want to watch that documentary that Kirsten was talking about, it sounds interesting. And if you have anything to say about Britney Spears, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Unless it's hate, then go somewhere else. We don't want to hear it. Um, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. You can follow us on review underscore squared on Instagram or Twitter. Both would be preferable. You can also email us the review squared at gmail.com if you have any cool stories you want. We would love to hear them. You can listen to us on any podcasting app or Blaze Radio at 7 o'clock on Fridays. I don't know Blaze's website. I should, but I don't. I continuously don't know Blaze's website. Um, And I want to thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a great day, morning, night, whatever time you're listening to this. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtide.